Welcome back to The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty and this week we're discussing economic justice. As a trial begins for two former Bear Stearns fund managers, we ask will any British bankers wind up in the dock? Plus, political philosopher Michael Sandel gives us his take on the bonus culture. And, after months of searching for a new chief exec, we analyse the problems at ITV and wonder why no one wants to run one of our finest cultural institutions. I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is The Business from The Guardian. Our panel this week is made up of Richard Ray and Jill Trainer. Rick, you're The Guardian's communications editor and it says here you're also the hardest working man in podcasting, for this week at least. Yes, I think that's just this week. Um, not usually, no. Not an ongoing commitment? No. <laughs> Well, Jill Train is our banking expert, and we'll begin with the world of banking. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. The trial of two former fund managers at investment bank Bear Stearns starts in New York. They're facing fraud charges relating to the collapse of $2 billion hedge funds in 2007. It's the first time criminal charges have been brought against any bank involved in the financial crisis. We'll find out in a moment whether British bankers are likely to face legal action. But first, let's go across to New York and speak to our Wall Street correspondent, Andrew Clark. Andy, tell us about this trial. Well, it's a trial that's garnered a whole lot of attention because uh, these two fellows, Ralph Chioffi and Matthew Tannen, um, have emerged as kind of poster boys for reckless irresponsibility on Wall Street, or at least that's the allegation. Um, They're accused of privately discussing amongst themselves how badly their fund was doing, how worried they were about a collapse in the market that, that one market they're investing in was toast, while publicly reassuring all their customers that nothing was wrong. They also um, allegedly removed some of their own money from these uh, $2 billion hedge funds uh, because they were worried about the market tanking while, again, assuring investors that that prospects were sunny and that that everything was fine. Um, So they're accused of misleading investors and in one case of uh, insider dealing. And tell us about the perils of running a Google Mail account. Yeah, well, one of these hedge fund managers, Matthew Tannen, um, decided to set up his own Google Mail account in order to keep a kind of personal diary of events. One would naturally keep a diary on a Gmail account, wouldn't one? Well, it's it's an odd strategy, isn't it? Um, Yeah, he was sending emails to himself, basically. And, you know, you only have to glance through these emails to realise that really no one else was supposed to read them because he talks about how he's um, taking an antidepressant called Wellbutrin and a stress medication. He's worried about getting hooked on them. And he talks about his own personal religious crisis and moans on about dragging the kids on holiday to to London. But more importantly, in judicial terms, he... um, he discusses his fears uh, about his own fund and says that he was worried that investors were subject to blow-up risk um, as far back as 2006, uh, which was a point at which the fund was marketing quite heavily and, and, and pulling, in, um, pulling in extra money from customers. Now, the feds have subpoenaed this Gmail account from Google's headquarters in California, so Google's had to hand over all of his um, his diary emails over over this period and they're now going to get an airing in court. This all sounds like a gift for hacks. How's it gone down with the media over there? Yeah, the media are loving it um, and there's been a lot of delving into the lifestyle of these two individuals. Um, one, one magazine, New York magazine, um, rather sniffily pointed out that Matthew Tannen has had to sell uh, two of his three uh, Ferraris. Uh, sorry, that was Ralph Choffey has had to sell two of his three Ferraris, um, but he's still got the one left, so he's doing a little bit better than most of the, uh, the poor individuals out on the street and, in this crisis. And how long do they face in prison? 
Um, they face a, a, a notional maximum of up to 20 years in prison. But it's not going to be an easy one for the feds to prove because um, it's one of those cases where most of the facts are not in dispute. We all know who said what to who and who put what in what email. Um, but the feds have got to prove intent. They've got to prove that Chioffi and Tannin actively set out to mislead investors. Um, and as with a lot of what happened in the run-up to the credit crunch, uh, exactly what was illegal and what was unethical but legal is something of a moot point. Jill, it looks like we could be facing our first ever criminal scalps out of the banking crisis in America. When will that happen over here? Well, interestingly, uh, it's possible that some of our bankers could get themselves in the same situation in the US. There's a class action that's already begun involving RBS. We don't know where that's going to... I mean, you know, the US courts are quite hard to fathom from this side of the Atlantic, but... Does th- it name clearly, Shred in the class action? Uh, it names a number of things in the class action, and it's mainly about the fact that oh, RBS did a rights issue way back before the actual banking crisis began. And the idea is that in the prospectus yeah. that went with this rights issue, that investors were misled into buying into it and that Fred was already, and the board were already lying about the state of RBS. I mean, it's a difficult situation, but the case is ongoing. Now, in the UK, um, there are a bunch of investors here, the small small investors who are appointing lawyers to have a look and see what the situation's like here on RBS. For the time being, at least, most of the focus has been on RBS. There have been chats at times about Lloyd's and the takeover of HBOS and who said what to who when and what should be and what shouldn't be known. But I, I'm not aware that that's moving on yet. But it feels as if most of the action is still in the US. Remember, we don't have that kind of culture here of taking legal action. But this is a situation where people are very hot under the collar. So we could find that changing. Rick, what purpose would it serve for people to go into court? Um, I think it would be a chance for us to get an idea of, as Jill says, who knew what when, uh, which um, Andy was also alluding to. Um, I mean, Jill's talking about the rights issue there for RBS, which goes back a couple of years. Um, when did we start, or when did people within these banks start thinking, hold on, this isn't going quite the way we wanted it to go, things are, go- things are getting a bit hot, we need to pull people out and pull some money out. And I think a lot of that... Perhaps most of that will only really come out if it's forced to do so in court. But to go back to your point about um, about the legal process, people have tried over the years to get that cl- those sort of class actions going in the UK, but it's never really quite happened. I mean, even with even with rail track, I mean that that sort of was run on a shoestring, as far yeah. as I can remember. Um, it's odd. Yeah. Jill, what uh, Rick's talking about there is kind of the criminal court serving as kind of truth and reconciliation mm-hmm. committee. I mean, what what kind of purpose would it serve for people for bankers to serve criminal terms? Would would anything be helped by that? Do you think? Well, I mean, if they've committed criminal acts, then I suppose that we should be endorsing any action that, that that allows them to be face repercussions for their actions. I mean, if if all people are trying to do is get some blood or a head on a stick or whatever, then you have to wonder if the motivation is correct. Clearly, a lot of people are out of pocket, not just people that own shares in these banks, because taxpayers have obviously got a lot at stake. I mean, I guess if there is some idea that they've done something criminal, then... It should go through the courts. The, the, the Financial Services Authority has its own investigation going on into the events at RBS, particularly. And it's possible, I mean, I don't know, but it's possible that the FSA could come out with some sort of statements talking about talking about what they've discovered and some sort of implications for the directors of RBS and the people who were authorised at RBS. We know, for instance, that one gentleman, Johnny Cameron, who ran the investment bank at, at RBS, has found it quite difficult to be re-registered to work in the city by the FSA. I mean, Sir Fred Goodwin 
as far as I'm aware, hasn't tried to get re-registered. Andy Hornby, the boss of HBOS, went and got a job in private equity, so he wouldn't need to be authorised by the FSA. So it's, you know, there are things going on behind the scenes that we just haven't quite got to the bottom of yet. Because it is, it is that, that's actually quite interesting, is the question of how you punish people for white-collar crime. Because they used to, a couple of years ago, there used to be this phrase that, oh, I got my MBA from Ford University, which meant Ford Open Prison. That actually, for a lot of people who run companies, they'd all been in Ford, and it was pretty much like a holiday camp. Mm-hmm. So stopping them from being directors again and keeping them out of, mm-hmm. out of the market might but be... But if the... you think of some of the people who... I mean, if you think of Gerald Ronson, you know, he's, he's built a fantastic career now. If you think of some of the people who were involved in the collapse of bearings... The regulator at the time put out disciplinary notices against some of them, but some of them are still working behind the scenes in the city. So, you know, it's difficult to know how you decide who's most culpable and, and, mm. and, and how you prove culpability and then how you, uh, you tackle it. Let's take this banking debate down another path. Michael Sandel is a professor at Harvard University and one of the world's most influential political philosophers. His latest book, Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, has just been published, and he came into the Guardian studios earlier. I asked him for his view on the financial crisis. One of the questions in the debates about bonuses and the bailouts generally was an argument in the name of the general welfare. Yes, it may seem unfair. It was argued these are wealthy financial institutions. They made reckless gambles. But if we don't bail them out, and if we don't allow their bonuses then everyone will suffer. The financial system will melt down and crash on the heads of everyone, including ordinary citizens. That was the main argument, both for the bailouts and for permitting the bonuses. So it was an argument in the name of the general welfare. In the end, politicians in the U.S. and the U.K. accepted that argument and enacted the bailouts. But there was, I think there still is, a sense of anger and outrage that is rooted in a sense of injustice. Many people feel, and I think it's a legitimate complaint, that these bankers and executives of investment firms were getting something they didn't deserve. Now, that's an issue of justice. goes back, I suppose, in a way to Aristotle. What do people deserve? Here, people were given something they didn't deserve, a subsidy for their banks, because, in a way, the rest of the economy was held hostage to their activities, their bad judgment, their greed in some cases. It was said at the time, fairness is off the table. We can't worry about that. We have to save the system from collapse. But fairness is never finally off the table. I think the lingering outrage is expressed in many ways. In the U.S. healthcare debate, there were town hall meetings over the summer that were brimming with anger and outrage, nominally about health care, but more broadly, I think, about the role of government, I think, lingering outrage over the bonuses and, and the bailouts. And in the UK, of course, you have the expenses scandal, which has touched a nerve. People are terribly angry about it. I think for reasons that go beyond the actual MPs' expenditures on, on dubious uh, items for their own benefit, I think it touched a nerve that has to do with the sense that our politics is not going well, our democracy is not accountable. I think it's connected to this underlying idea that justice is a matter of who deserves what. It isn't only a matter of how to promote the the GDP. So bring this back to bankers' bonuses. Can you give us a couple of principles that you would want to inject into the debate? I would say that if we have to make a concession... 
and allow bonuses for the sake of incentives that will uh, serve the general welfare. First of all, we have to examine whether that's true empirically. But if a plausible case can be made for it, the question of fairness still has to be answered. One of the most egregious aspects of the bonuses and of the bailouts is that the gains in the good times were privatized, whereas the losses are socialized. That's unfair. So somehow the political and economic system has to register and remedy that unfairness. One can do it through the tax system, whether through inheritance taxes or more targeted taxes to, uh, to the financial industry. One can impose fees and taxes to support stronger regulation so that the firms themselves and the investors themselves are paying in advance into an insurance pool that will cover the losses and the risks if things go, go bad in the future. And broader questions about the uh, distribution of income and wealth, I think, should be put front and center in political debate as a way of registering the fact that there was a bailout and there have been bonuses subsidized by taxpayer funds, and there should be way, some way in which the, the political and economic system makes compensation for that. I think we should be debating what form that compensation to the taxpayer, to the public, should take. I don't have a single clear solution. But whether it's through the tax system or in some other way, uh, I, I don't think we should simply let it rest with the utilitarian argument that we had to bail them out. You see, critics might say, well, it's all very well for a Harvard professor to talk about what's good and what's bad, and we should have a public debate. But actually, we've got a perfectly good mechanism for deciding what's, what's in the public interest, and it's called the market. And, it, and you can put prices on things, and you can see whether people want to buy it at that price, and, and that works perfectly well. What's your, what's your beef with the market? Well, what's happened here has, uh, is not simply a matter of the market. It's a matter of enormous taxpayer subsidies going to bail out the results of market activities. That's why there's so much anger. So if it were simply a matter of market activity, if the taxpayer were never called upon to, um, uh, to uh, deal with the wreckage that uh, market activity left in its wake, then that would be a very different matter. There also needs to be stronger regulation. That seems to be agreed generally politically. But I think we have to go beyond regulations to prevent this happening again. I think we have to take up more directly fundamental questions of distributive justice, looking at the gap between rich and poor. It's interesting, after the financial meltdown, a lot of the bankers said this was a financial tsunami it was due to forces beyond our control. Suppose they're right about that. What does that suggest about the huge compensation they enjoyed when the times were good? Was that all their own doing? Maybe not. And if not, then there's a broader social and political question. How should the fruits of those, those good times uh, be distributed? Michael Sandell there. Justice is out now in all good bookshops and probably some pretty ropey ones too. Full details on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business.
Sponsor theme to Coronation Street, of course, the UK's most watched soap and consistently one of ITV's biggest hits since it was first broadcast in 1960. But behind the scenes at Britain's main commercial channel, things could scarcely have gone any worse over the past 24 months. Rick, take us through some of the horrors at ITV. Um, I was going to start with actually the, the phrase that they're going to start a new game show called ITV Lacks Talent, which unfortunately <laughs> is a position they've got themselves in. Um, we all know the advertising market hasn't been very good. It hasn't been very good for a couple of years. The recession didn't help either. Um, the migration to digital television, the splitting up of all the different channels. Um, there's so many different opportunities to, to watch television that there was no... There were so many different ways to watch television that there was no one um, individual place where you could go and get all your advertising. So advertising revenue itself was shared. and So there's been, there's been this general trend down in revenues for ITV. Now, added to that, um, in April uh, this year, Michael Grade said he'd be giving up his executive um, chairmanship and becoming chairman. And they would start looking for an executive, a chief executive to take over from him. Um, within a few weeks, we were talking about Tony Ball, the guy who used to run Sky. He was the, the heir apparent, as it were. Um, various other people were mentioned at the same time. Um, the whole process was being run by ITV's non-exec, one of its senior non-exec directors, uh, James Crosby. In the summer... Ball, of HBOS fame. Of HBOS fame, which we will undoubtedly get to in a moment. Um, in the summer, Ball fell out of favour with some other people on the board because he was being, to put it bluntly, rather pushy. Um, and they turned to this guy called Simon Fox, who'd done a fantastic job at HMV, um, dealing with a traditional business and turning it into a digital business, which is exactly what ITV needed. Unfortunately, he didn't want the job. He wanted to stay at HMV. So they went back looking around again. Um, at that point, they said, uh, well, perhaps the problem here is that we're looking for the wrong person. Instead of looking for a chief executive, we should look for a chairman. Ah, but we've got an executive chairman. Oh, we can't make you chief executive, can we? You've just got to leave, which is what, to be honest, they should have done in, in April. So Michael Gray then last month said, actually, I am going to step down completely we're going to put in a chairman and that chairman will find a chief executive their hope was they could do both things at the same time unfortunately they couldn't the person that they had picked sir crispin davis who used to run a reed elsevier which runs lots of scientific magazines and publications and also had done very well in turning a traditional business into additional business looked great suddenly they didn't want him some of the other people on the board didn't like the idea of him and the person they picked as chief executive didn't want him to be chairman so they said okay we'll go to the next person on the list uh, the bloke who founded bmi uh, the airline and he said hmm had a look at um, ITV, uh, not sure I can give this as much work as you want me to, so I don't want it. Hold on, so we haven't got a chief executive or a chairman, and our executive chairman is leaving. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Oh, uh, drat. And that's pretty much where we are now. Jill, it's you, a great been, story, isn't it? Is it is fantastic, I love it. Um, Rick, no hesitation, no deviation, barely in repetition. Sorry. Just two minutes. That was absolutely brilliant. Let's go back to Tony Ball. And the, non's, the, non, the non-appointment there, was he ever worth 30 million quid? If he'd been able to turn around ITV, yes. And everyone would have thought he was fantastic. Um, one of the biggest problems with ITV, and this is the reason that Sir Crispin Davis said, actually, I don't think I want to do this, is that you don't get the time to do something with the business. Every minute of every day, someone is writing something about ITV. It's one of the most watched companies. People either. like you? Yes, probably. Yes, usually. <laughs> Um, and there were a lot of people like me, um, unfortunately. Um, and we're constantly writing about ITV and it's not working. Or they'll put out every day, you can watch it on television. And you can see that television programme wasn't very good. That's the chief executive's fault. We don't let programmes bid it anymore. If they're not a success overnight, they're a complete failure. And it's the chief executive's fault. And he just thought, well, as chairman of this company, this is going to be terrible, to be honest. 
Um, and that seems to be one of the main problems, that they need a turnaround specialist either as chairman or chief executive, and a TV specialist either as chairman and either or as chief executive. The two of them will work together. The chairman will give the chief executive enough time, and it's going to take some time, to turn this business into the digital broadcaster of the future. But we just can't seem to find that team. So what they've got at the moment uh, is uh, John Creswell, who was the chief operating officer, um, who everyone was very snooty about when it came to people who could be chief executive and saying, mm, no, he's not really a, a television operational man, he can't do it. Um, and bizarrely enough, the day after they admit they can't find themselves a chairman, um, because Crispin and, and the bishop have, have, have quit, the day after that they announce that they can't find a chairman, uh, John Creswell comes out and says, actually, um, I'm going to have a bond issue, raising £135 million. Advertising revenues haven't been as bad as you thought in October and November, and I think I can sort out the pension deficit. The so day things, after. things could be brought bit bottoming out? Mm, uh, Possibly, yes. It's one of the most dangerous things to predict how ITV is going to do because they have this incredible ability to shoot themselves in the foot. Um, and as soon as they come up with a bad programme, we will immediately attack it and the whole spiral starts over again. Am I allowed to ask yes, questions? Did did you? John Creswell, then, is there a chance that he could become chief executive? I mean, no. I, I, mean I know he said he doesn't, he's not, he's not going to stay, but why don't they just make him chief executive, given that he's got this bond issue away? Yes, in case? I mean, it's that he's... It's quite terrible, actually, that, um, that he's had to put his head on the block and say, look, I will just be here as an interim chief exec and, and then quit. Um, and in theory, yes, he could stick around as chief executive if they decided to, to keep him on. I'm not sure he would want to stay on for a job that so many other people have, have turned down. Jill, let me ask you a question. James Crosby, um, yes. he seems to be, have, have been running this appointments process. He also seems to be consulting to the government on what it should do about mortgage-backed securities. How does he manage it after fouling up at HBOS so badly? Well, remember, he, he, I mean, he unceremoniously lost his job at the FSA, you know, a couple of months ago when these allegations of this whistleblower were raised at the Treasury Select Committee. I mean, you know, ITV was his moment to prove that mm. he was worth having on a board, that Sir James Crosby was well, not tainted like goods. And this is the point. Has he done it? I mean, you know, to me, the whole problem with ITV, as somebody who's, who's very interested in corporate governance and the way shareholders invest in companies, is that I've never understood why they allowed Michael Gray to become executive chairman in the first place. And to me, the, 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 the cause of this was set in stone two years ago. And now here we're finding what goes wrong when you put in an executive chairman, you put in somebody who's too strong who, and, and who has a board around him who can't control him. And so James Crosby, as the senior independent director, was the person who shareholders were relying on to be their mouthpiece to the board. And it hasn't worked. Rick? Yes, no, you're, you're absolutely spot on. And um, what um, James should have done back in March, April time when they were talking about succession planning is said to grade, you have to go completely, which is what they've done four months later and after terrible things to the share price. Well, let me ask you another question, Rick. Um, is it just inevitably the case that media companies tend to promote producers and journalists to positions of management and that journalists and producers can't manage? Yeah, this is the bit where I shoot myself massively in the foot. Because by, you want a job by saying No, <laughs> if only. By saying that journalists do generally tend to make the world's worst managers. Um, and Have you got anyone do, in mind? No, <laughs> just generally. When you look around, certainly around television, some of the television companies, content producers are fantastic and they're brilliant when they've got someone with them um, who knows how management works properly. Um, the two together, I mean, ITV was a perfect opportunity to put a turnaround specialist who really knew the nuts and bolts of a business together with someone who loved television and really wanted to make good programmes. The two of them would have worked brilliantly, but the whole thing has been done totally the wrong way around so what's the place of a michael grade or a greg dyke kind of figure uh, at a big broadcasting company that has a huge budget and is also a business making 
making great programs, and I don't mean themselves making those great programs, but knowing the people and knowing what works on television, and then having built around them a structure that allows them to do that. And that's what the board should be doing. That's what the rest of your COO would be doing. That's what John Creswell is now is now doing at ITV. He's setting up you know, a business that had a ter- has a terrible pensions deficit, has enormous debts, and he's trying to sort out the operational bit of the business in the hope that someone will sort out the TV bit. I mean, what's so amazing about ITV is that the shareholders, the big shareholders, were so frustrated with the board that they end up trying to find their own candidate, which is how we end up in this... Tony Ball nightmare, yeah. you know, because the big boys like LNG, who are stuck with ITV, they can't sell it, they're index trackers, they've got to hold the shares, find themselves tearing their hair out. And this is what happens when you've got a board that is scared or is unable to deal with the person at the top. It happened to RBS. Just before the rights issue, there were shareholders there also trying to put their old man into the job, desperate to try and, who was ironically Stephen Hester, in, according to some people, you know. Trying to put their own person into the job because they're frustrated by the board's inability to make choices for themselves. Okay, Jill. Well, you may be the only journalist I've ever met who says I'm really fascinated in issues of corporate governance. So let me ask you this. How damaging is it to a company to be rudderless for this length of time? Hugely. I mean, you know, it's not good for anybody. Can you think of any parallels? um, Well, it it certainly can't be good for morale inside the company. I mean, if you work at ITV, it must be the most demoralising situation to find yourself in. If If you're writing and reading about ITV every day as an employee, even if you're the person opening the door for the executives as they come in and out, it's pretty frustrating. And, and, and for a company to have a board that can't agree about who the chief executive should be, then it's just a nightmare. It's sort of a bit what happens at M&S, if you think about it. You're asking for parallels. You know, M&S, to, you know, uh, are having this investor day this week where, you know, the chief exec- the ch- chairman, chief executive, Stuart Rose, Sir Stuart Rose, is calling it, you know, has, it's the M&S got talent. Well, again, we're in a situation, an executive chairman, again, trying to find a chief executive to work with him. It's a very difficult situation. And Rick, would you like to take this opportunity to rule yourself in or out for the ITV chairmanship post? Oh, I'd love to do it. It'd be fantastic. Because you've got, um, that's what you'd, you'd need someone who has realistically nothing to lose and everything to gain. And they're very difficult to find in the city, certainly in their sort of 30s or 40s, which is what you want as a chief executive. So yes, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So we have a new media mogul. And on that jolly note, if you want to leave a comment on anything you've heard this week, head to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. My thanks to Jill Trainer and Richard Ray, who will be spending this afternoon polishing off his application letter and uh, a CV, I hope. Our producer is Ben Green. I'm Edith Chakraborty, and that was the business. <laughs> <laughs>